The Crucifixion of Jesus. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads at heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross, if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So Jesus is crucified. And on the cross, he, he refuses what seems to have been a, a mild narcotic, wine mixed with gall, with some sort of spice. He needs to be, he wants to be fully present for what he is going through. And the soldiers cast lots for his clothing, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22 that we looked at briefly uh, last Sunday night. Matthew doesn't mention the thief who turns to Jesus in repentance and faith. Rather, he, he notes that, that Christ is in the midst of wrongdoers, thieves on either side. He is therefore right at the very center of human sin and rebellion. And Matthew recounts some of the things that are said against Jesus. They are highly ironic. Those who, who don't who, who say them don't know the full extent of what they are saying, but Matthew, who knows the whole story and, and who tells us the whole story, helps us see the significance of what is said. So the title over Jesus, the King of the Jews, this was meant to be his charge from Pilate, but it is indeed his title. In fact, of course, he is the King of Kings. He saved others, but he cannot save himself as the people mocked him. It is, of course, the case that in order to save others, in order to save us, he could not save himself. His saving work for us depends upon him being on the cross, suffering the penalty for our sins. They say, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And yet, if he comes down from the cross, there is no salvation, nothing to believe for. All the way through, 
Jesus has been misunderstood. We've seen that as we've read the Gospels. But now Matthew tells us that at this most crucial of moments, no one around him understands what's going on. All are against him, and he is alone. The death of Jesus. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spread. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So Jesus dies. He suffers on the cross for sin. Peter looked at the cry after election last Sunday night, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus feels forsaken as he becomes a sin offering. You think of what is happening here, this tremendous mystery, the sins unpunished beforehand, Romans tells us, so all the sins of God's people up to this point, and then all of the sins of God's people subsequently are, are piled upon the one who knew no sin, the one pure person who ever walked upon the earth, and they are paid for by Him. Everything changes. Everything is different. And as Matthew tells us this story, he begins to illustrate for us the effects of his work. First of all, it is illustrated in the tearing of the temple curtain, this great curtain many feet high, the, the width of a span of a person's hand, torn in two from top to bottom, torn in two from heaven to earth. God is opening up the way from the holy of holies to the place where people could come to worship. The way to God is open. Access has been actually won. 
Then there are those who are raised to life. It is Matthew specifically who tells us about this. In other words, death has been conquered. But the effects of what Jesus does begin to be seen in lives. First of all, the Roman centurion. In fact, it's Matthew here who, who hints that it's not only the Roman centurion, but those who were with him, those who were crucifying Jesus, who say, surely he was the Son of God. They are not Jews. They are Gentiles. The indication is that the effects of Jesus' death will be seen in lives and will go to the ends of the earth. But what we see is that he is not the only one, this Roman centurion who has come to recognize Jesus. We see others, others who not only confess that Jesus is the Son of God, but also who take costly decisions to align themselves with him. Joseph of Arimathea is one of those people. He has become a disciple He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, we learn elsewhere. He's, he's a well-connected man. He's a wealthy man. And he goes to Pilate, and he asks for Jesus' body. And you think of, of what a man like that has to lose. This is a, a career-ending move. He will forever be identified with the Jesus people who will come to be despised within Jerusalem, and yet he knows where his ultimate loyalties lie. Pilate gives him the body. He wraps it in cloth. He places it in the tomb. Jesus is wrapped in cloth at the beginning and the end of his life. How amazing that one so powerful should become so helpless and vulnerable and be in the hands of mere human beings. And Matthew tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary is watching all of this, taking part. By the way, that sort of uh, runs a coach and horses through one of the early objections to the resurrection, that the women go to the wrong tomb, that they know exactly where it is. And in any case, many others know where it is too and would not make that mistake either. Jesus dies. The guard at the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven 
and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen just as he said. Come and, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So the disciples are in disarray at this point. They're not spoken of on this day. This is the Sabbath, the day after preparation day. But Jesus' enemies are at work. And they are fully aware it emerges of the claims that Jesus made that he would rise from the dead. They know that he said he would do this. The disciples, it appears, have forgotten this, but his enemies have not. They don't believe, of course, that he will, but they imagine the disciples to be much more courageous and much more creative than they actually are. And they think, that they might steal the body and spread a rumor, and so they post guards on the tomb. You notice that they know that the key to a resurrection story is an empty tomb. That's what matters. With, with a body, the whole thing goes away. As long as they can keep the body, they know that no story about a resurrection can spread. All the authorities would need to do if rumors of a resurrection started to appear was to open the tomb and produce a body. While they have a body, there's no story of a resurrection. However, there will be a resurrection. There will be an empty tomb. And we see here what happens. There is an earthquake and an angel of the Lord comes and rolled back the stone and sits on it. Sits on it, I think, as if to, to sit on it in triumph, as it were. The guards pass out at these events. They see the angel and they become like dead men. And, and the, woman gets, the, the woman get there and the angel speaks to them. In the midst of all of this, we were reading this morning is Jesus' appearance to, to Mary specifically, and we can see how that all fits into this overview that Matthew gives us. But what I want us to notice here is the reactions of these guards to this angel. How glorious he is. You look at their description. His appearance was like lightning. And his clothes were as white as snow. Now, angels are but creatures. They are but 
servants of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read that they, they cover these heavenly beings. They cover their faces in His presence. And if this is the effect that the mere servants of the Lord have, how much more will it be when Jesus is revealed? How much more glorious is He? How much more glorious will it be to look upon Him who, as Hebrews says, is far superior to the angels. Our vision of Jesus is so often far too small. The one who steps out of the tomb, you see, is the Lord of glory. And yet, when he comes to those who are his own, he says to them, greetings, and do not be afraid. The guards report. While the men, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, "You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Thanks, Matthew. I find this a fascinating detail that really only Matthew brings to us. When I was at, at school, I, I remember a, a girl who was in my class, and she ended up uh, chatting to a very good RE teacher that we had and they talked about why this girl who was in my class was not a Christian, was not a believer. And the RE teacher pushed her a little bit on that question. I imagine that if she were to do that now today, it could be very difficult for her, but in those days, perhaps it was a little bit easier. And, and she presented her with the claims of Christ. But my classmate said to her teacher, until God shows himself to me, until he does something that is beyond doubt, I will not believe in him. And she was really quite proud of herself. She told us all what this conversation had entailed. That's how I know what happened. And she was pretty convinced that the problem for her was a problem of evidence. There just was not enough evidence for her to believe. It was around that time that I was wrestling with Christian things, and I suppose I too thought the question was really about evidence. Now I see it slightly differently. People can be presented with the most remarkable evidence and yet continue to refuse God. You take these religious leaders that we've just read off. The guards reported what happened to the chief priests. These guards knew that they were in trouble, and they would have left nothing out of their story. The earthquake, the angel in all of his gloriousness, the empty tomb, which no doubt they would have checked out when they came around. They would have described the grave clothes that we were thinking about this morning. They were presented, these religious leaders were presented with remarkable evidence, 
evidence that they could have checked out if they had wished. They could have looked at the tomb for themselves. They could have interviewed the disciples if they had wanted, but they choose not to do that. They cover it up. They pay off the guards. They concoct a cover story. They say the disciples came while we were asleep and stole the body. It's a terrible lie. It obviously gains some traction. That's part of why Matthew addresses it. And I I wonder how culpable these men are for denying people the opportunity to hear the truth about Jesus. But what does that say? It says, on the one hand, that the tomb is empty. It says that, as we were thinking earlier, there is no body for them to produce. The one thing that they could not do to prove the resurrection wrong, they could not do because they had no body to do it with. But it also says to us that our problem, the problem of unbelief, is not an evidence problem. The human heart, as it is left to itself, will seek to cover up the truth and dodge the truth and ignore the truth about Jesus because it cannot live with the consequences of Jesus being true, of Jesus being who he really says he is, the Son of God. And therefore, we cannot be neutral about him. He must be listened to and bowed before. So, as we think about our friends and our family, and of course, where Matthew takes us to is the challenge to go out into all the world. We'll think about that in a moment. As we think about our immediate context and our friends and our family, evidence is not unimportant. It is sometimes what God uses to speak to people. But people are not neutral and open and waiting to be convinced. We are, by nature, enemies of God. We are, by nature, truth suppressors. We are those who hold down the cork of truth under the surface of the water. And therefore, we need to pray. It is a spiritual battle that rages over those who are around us. And our weapons must be spiritual weapons, weapons of the Word and of prayer. And if you find yourself here tonight, and you have told yourself that the reason that you're not yet a Christian is because of evidence, then the Bible would say something very different to you. And that means that that you really are in a very difficult and dangerous position, and you need to cry out to God to have mercy, and yet know that He delights to answer that cry. The Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Thanks, Emma. Well, all the way through this account, we see the people are sharing the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus tells them to. He says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me, for example. People are running. We saw that this morning. They are telling others. Largely, they are telling others amongst the existing disciple band, but they are telling others nonetheless. But now, Jesus gathers them right at the end of this gospel account, and He makes clear the implications of His resurrection for the world, and that is that He is to be proclaimed amongst the nations. Disciples are to be made. People are to be baptized. Converts are to be taught everything that He has commanded. These are activities that involve all of God's people, but they involve His people together in the church. Making disciples like this demands churches to do these things. So, Jesus is commissioning His church to go into all the world, and He promises His presence with us as we do that. Now, you may think we're doing fairly well with that. After all, Christianity has spread around the world remarkably. It is, by many counts, the largest religion within the world. And yet, the reality is that there are more people alive today who have never heard of Jesus than were on the earth when He spoke these words. And so the urgency remains. You've perhaps heard stories that go like this. I heard of one of them this week. <clears throat> a missionary gets to a, an unreached people, tells them about Jesus, learns the language, tells them about Jesus, and, and people respond remarkably and trust in Christ, and they say something like this, this is great news. Thank you for telling us about the Savior whom we are now able to trust in. When did these things happen? How long have you known? And the answer comes back, well, 2,000 years. And there is a pause and, and the question, why has no one come before? The urgency remains. And so, as we read Matthew's gospel, Jesus is nailed to a cross. He dies. He dies, and what He achieves in His death is made clear. People identify with Him as Savior. He rises from the dead, Lord of glory, yet He deals tenderly with those He knows as His disciples. He faces the deep enmity of the human heart, which suppresses the evident truth about Him, and yet He commissions us to go into the world and to make disciples. It's a great story. It's a true story. Let us pray for God's help as we seek to get on with it. Let's pray together. Lord, take us, we ask. Help us to, as it were, carry on this story through the work that you are doing by your Holy Spirit in and through the church as we take the good news of Christ died and risen.
to all the world. Help us, Lord, as we live this out, as we seek to proclaim it, as we seek to live with Christ as Lord of our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.